0: Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. A U.S.-based study has concluded that students who spent more time in class over the pandemic in 2021 performed significantly better on standardized tests than kids that mostly learned remotely, and the drop-off in grades was greater for some subjects than others. The National Bureau of Economic Research in the United States has delivered a working paper that reveals a more refined picture of the impact of remote learning on certain demographics and regions. Black and Hispanic student grades in large urban school districts, for example, are suffering more than most. It's enough to have the four authors of the research to urge Canadian governments to consider this evidence when deciding whether to resume in-person schooling or not. Brown University Professor of Economics Emily Oster joined us, and we established right off the top, we're not passing judgment on decisions made by governments we're focusing on the impact of those decisions.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, when you know when I think about the arch of kind of what has happened over the last 18 months, there were a lot of reasons early on that everybody closed schools and then there were a lot of complicated questions about opening and the logistics of opening and who was going to be opening and how we thought about the the risks and, and benefits there. But I think it's you're exactly right for this. From the standpoint of this research, really all of that is put aside. And what we're interested in is people made different choices. What were the consequences of those choices? And then potentially, to what extent can we use that information now to make to make more informed choices going forward rather than to pass judgment on choices that were made in the past?
0: So then let's define a term that we may use throughout this conversation, learning model.
1: By learning models, a lot of different ways people talk about this. When we talk about learning model, we mean what is the, what is the mode in which you were attending school, uh, and differentiating between attending school in person. Uh, versus attending school virtually. And at least in the U.S., and I don't know how much how, how it worked exactly in Canada, but, uh, but in the U.S., we had sort of really three modes. There was traditional in-person learning in which students went to school or had the opportunity to go to school five days a week in a kind of normal schedule. There was fully virtual learning, which was uh, where you didn't get to go to school at all, and all of the learning was on some electronic platform. Uh, And then there was a lot of different versions of hybrid models, which we call uh, just hybrid, where students went to school some of the time and learned virtually some of the time. And so those are kind of the three learning modes we talk about.
0: And of the 12 states you reviewed, how did variations in learning models impact your ability to examine the effects of the pandemic on student test scores?
1: In the paper, we have these 12 states and we try we have sort of already pre-limited the states to places where there was a, a fairly extensive amount of testing uh, during the pandemic. So one thing to note is that in general in the US at the end of every school year, all states do a uh, comprehensive standardized testing that you know covers all of their. Uh, all of their students. That did not happen in any state in 2020. And it happened only in a subset of states in 2021. And even within those states, the participation was sometimes not very good. So uh, so we're working with a, a sort of subset of a, of a subset with the states where we had better information on, uh, on their their test scores in which their test score data was more comprehensive. Uh, and that that limited to some extent the, the states that we could study. I think we are more confident that we are able to draw conclusions from those states given that we are looking at places with relatively good data.
0: And as far as those states are concerned, we're talking Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Nevada, Ohio, Rhode Island, Virginia, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. And while we said we weren't talking about politics here, I do note that there doesn't seem to be a wide disconnect between red states versus blue states. Well. No? Oh. <laughs>
1: One of the most comprehensive ways to organize school reopening over the last year in the U.S. is on political lines. So, uh, districts that went, um, districts and states that were more Republican, say in the 2020 uh, presidential elections, were more likely to have in-person schooling. Um, so, from the standpoint of our of our data, we have a lot of we have like a wide range of states in terms of their their right and left leaning. It is true that the states that that lean more to the to the right were more likely to be. Open more in person,
0: and did that have a significant enough impact on the data?
1: It has a significant impact on uh, it has significant impact on who is learning in person, and it does have probably a significant impact on the on the test score changes.
0: So then your main finding here was that a decline in student 2021 test scores was significantly larger in districts with less access to in-person schooling that's right by how much
1: we find is on average there's about a uh, a 10 percentage point difference in the loss in learning between districts that were fully in person versus districts learned in another mode so in fact there is a general decline everywhere so even in states and districts where there was uh, more or less uniform in-person learning so state like wyoming where there's basically everybody was able to go in person all the time. We still see some declines in uh, in, in test scores, but those declines uh, are more like two to four percentage points, Where uh, whereas when you then add on the sort of virtual learning, they were seeing about a 10 percentage point larger decline in those scores in math and more like six percentage points in English.
0: So any student going into the pandemic who was a difficult student in the first place was tremendously hampered over the course of the last 12 months.
1: I think that's right and in fact I think it goes beyond that. I think that in that in general uh, almost almost every student no matter whether they went in in a more disadvantaged way or not was hampered to some extent by the by the pandemic. We do see that it looks like the the sort of test score losses are larger and more vulnerable uh school districts which suggests that students who were already struggling more perhaps had even larger impacts, but actually in some of the analysis we've done here, we can see uh, changes in test scores or impacts of in-person learning even on the the kind of who is doing very well on the test. So there's different cut rates in the test. there's passing, advanced passing. And we can see that that even if we looked at you know, the share of people who are performing really well, that's also declining uh, over the pandemic and more so in in more uh, more remote districts. So I think that you know there's kind of an across the board impact of these of both the pandemic and of these learning modes.
0: The decline in scores seem to vary across subjects. To what do we attribute that? Is is it harder to teach math remotely than it is in person?
1: Yeah. Th- so this is an interesting question. So you're you're exactly right. There's two very large differences where the the declines in the scores in math are much larger than in than in ELA. Um English language arts. Uh, that is consistent with, for example, other things that we know from um from charter school data where people have looked at the impacts of of charter schools on math versus English and they generally see that that in all of those kind of interventions, the impacts are larger in terms of math, which suggests that that something about schools, is more important for math learning than, uh, than for, for ELA and their stories. People can tell, people will tell about that, like, you know, well, if you have a lot of books at home, then, you know, you can like home is more important for kind of learning to read and learning to do reading comprehension, because that's something that once you know how to read, you can kind of, um, you know, your parents can scaffold that more. Whereas scaffolding, like exactly how do you do this particular math, Problem is something parents have a have a harder time with. I will say one thing, which is that our data here uh, is on grades three through eight, because that is the age groups that are um, that are kind of covered in these type of tests. By the third grade, most students should have learned to read. If you think there are impacts of uh, of the pandemic and of learning mode on learning to read, we are not going to pick that up. Uh, so much in these test scores because we aren't seeing the uh, kindergartners and first graders who are the people whose reading comprehension would be more affected. So again, I think there's like more things we're going to potentially see over time as we understand more about the impacts of the pandemic.
0: There also seems to have been a wide disparity in the pass rates among the states you surveyed. How much of this is wealth related? How much of it is economic?
1: There is a big piece of of it that's economic, and I think you can see that in some of the interactions. That some of these effects are larger in in places where, um, where you know, students are less um, are are less well off. And I think that is some of that has to do with you know what kind of internet or device access that students have. Right, if you want people to have a good learning experience on on the internet. I, it's awfully helpful if they all have a computer, much easier for everybody to have a computer in a, in a wealthier district than a poorer district. So I think there's a there's a, a, a piece of that. On the other hand, there's there's a, a sort of a thing that's layering on top of that, which is that wealthier districts were more likely to be in person. So it's both sort of students in students who are who are in kind of less well off districts, both less likely to have access to the kinds of things they need to make virtual learning work. And they were more likely to be in a situation in which they had virtual learning. So it was a sort of double uh, kind of it's like a doubly bad. Um, It's doubly bad.
0: I wonder how much uh, that has to do with higher covid rates in any given district. We've learned um, anecdotally, as well as looking at the numbers, that. When we have uh, poorer regions of any given district, that uh, we have higher rates of COVID, because those are parents who cannot afford to work from home or simply don't have jobs that make that possible.
1: Yeah, so I think that there's there's a couple of different versions of that that you can try to address. So, so one is the question of literally, is it the COVID rates that are that are sort of at, at going going on here, and, and we can try to directly a, adjust for those. There's a complicated aspect of, of the way this worked in the U.S., which is actually the districts with higher COVID rates were more likely to open for in-person learning. Really? Yeah. So so that And that relates to this um, thing I said earlier about the, uh, the sort of left-right leaning, that the kind of re- Republican-leaning states in the U.S. were both more likely to open for in-person learning. They also had higher COVID rates for reasons that have to do, I think, not at all with the schools, but with the other kinds of sort of differences in lockdowns. Now, what that means is that we have a lot of places where there was virtual learning and at the same time that there was virtual learning, there was also a sort of more general lockdown of the economy. So I think in some ways, the most challenging thing to separate here is how much Are any impacts we're seeing in virtual learning really about the closing of schools as opposed to about the fact that, you know, people's parents were out of work or there was another shock to their income or there are other ways in which their kind of mental health or physical health were affected by by lockdowns. And one of the things we can do and we've done in sort of an updated version of the paper is we actually look at at sort of try to compare places that are very physically close so school districts that are in the same, what we call in the U.S., the same commuting zone, so places that are close enough that you could commute between them for your, for your job. So they tend to share a lot of features of the economic environment, um, but where the, the sort of school districts made different choices about closures. And even there, we see very large differences um, across school districts, even though they're basically sharing other aspects of the pandemic experience.
0: I'm looking at some of the the numbers here, and both Massachusetts and Nevada revealed an unusual anomaly. The districts with the least in-person learning slightly outperformed districts with intermediate in-person learning. Uh, Let's define what um, the the intermediate versus, you know, uh, the other forms mean, first of all. And, And do we know why this is the case?
1: In that image that you were looking at, we're separating out districts by um, sort of what share of the time they had access to full in-person learning. So is it like less than a third of the time, uh, more than two thirds of the time, or intermediate is between a third and two thirds of the time? So this is kind of a rough categorization of a kind of how much in-person learning was there.
0: And it gave you a dot plot.
1: And it gave us a nice dot plot. There's a lot of different dot plots we've experimented with. That's the one we got to. Um, and and you know it's right that actually you see a, a few places where the kind of overall image of kind of the more in-person learning is is better is is complicated in various places by in some you know I think actually in Rhode Island, um, which maybe is not in that dot plot it kind of goes the other direction. So uh, so there's there is some just noise in the in the data. Um, and I think the other, the other thing is that, you know, there's, there's a, there are many things going on that are not just about in-person learning. So on average, you know, we can say it looks like in-person learning was was beneficial, but there are a lot of other things that are driving this that are different different across uh, locations having to do with economic conditions and schooling conditions and so on. And so it's there's certainly more going on than just this one particular um, factor, even if that factor is important.
0: What was going on in Connecticut on the dot plot of districts with most intermediate and least in-person learning? Its dots were largely the same, whereas the other states, there was at least some wider disparity between students who spent only one third of the year in person versus those who spent more than two thirds.
1: Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting about that is to ask, you know, is that is that kind of a characteristic of just like a sort of an like something that is that is an accident of the data? Or is there something that Connecticut was doing? that was kind of systematically serving their remote students better or serving their in-person students worse. Um, or, you know, and I think that's something that we are, um, that we are sort of trying to, to dive into a little bit more is to understand when there are variations across states, how much is that, ref- that really reflective of some kind of variation in the way that they approached these different learning modes? Because I think ultimately if we, Imagine that we we may be occasionally in these kind of uh, in this circumstance in the future in which we we sometimes need to take advantage of remote learning. It seems like there should be some opportunity here to understand uh, what works better or not as well.
0: Well, then of the 12 states you studied, Wyoming was the one with the most in-person learning overall. Can we treat that as sort of the best case scenario for students? And if so, what's the least amount of damage the pandemic has done to student grades?
1: That's certainly one approach. I think you could, you could take. A, you could try probably sort of map together a couple of these states with uh, with with kind of pretty good in person learning and try to say something about about them. But yes, Wyoming is the place with the most of this. Um, and, you know, they had declines, but the declines are, you know, and the, and the declines are real, actually. So generally, there's not much variation in these kind of test score pass rates over time. So you wouldn't, it's not like you typically expect a kind of 2% variation over time. You typically expect, expect almost no variation. Um, so Wyoming sees a little bit of a decline. It's like sort of, I think, 2 and 4%, perhaps. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a fairly small decline relative to what we're seeing in some of these other places. So maybe we want to think, maybe that is the best case scenario.
0: Public policies like additional sick days and access to childcare have been initiated to help mitigate the impact of COVID-19 on households. What roles do other pandemic-related factors like parental working conditions and changes in childcare access play in the results?
1: I think that um, that it is likely that variations in parental working conditions are playing a role in the interactions that we're seeing and the fact that we're observing sort of larger losses for um, districts with more Black and Hispanic students, for districts who are uh, serving more students who are eligible for free free lunch, which is a marker for for income. If you sort of think about uh, what are the what are the reasons why remote schooling may be difficult, uh, you know there are issues of getting kids to log on. They need to be monitored. Um, you know, a seven year old cannot really be relied on to kind of just sit at sit at their Zoom computer for eight hours a day without some without some monitoring. Uh, and that kind of monitoring is just much easier to do, uh, if you are, um, if you are a person, it's not that it's easy, but it's easier if you are working, uh, you know, working from home in a white collar job than if you have to go, you know, work outside the home and get somebody else to watch her, uh, to watch your child. So I think that's the sense in which this probably really interacts with the other supports that we're providing, uh, that we're providing families.
0: Your school lunch indicator is interesting from that perspective of it does provide us with insight into any given district's poverty level. There had been so much discussion about the importance in the United States of keeping certain schools open because often this was the only way a child was getting a warm meal. For those regions that kept those schools open for that purpose, did we see the impact on learning mitigated? To the upside,
1: we do not see that in such a granular way that we could that we could separate them that out, and I, it's a more complicated than that in the sense that a lot of these places where they are serving a particularly vulnerable set of students, uh, it's not just that they opened that they provided school lunches. Um, it is that also in some of those places they actually provided, it's sc- like locations, right? So we saw uh, some districts that basically said you can bring your kid to school. And, you know, although the teachers are not going to be there in person, your kid can be in school uh, Zooming from their school if you need, basically, like, because you have to work outside the home. So it, like, But we don't have enough granular information about the ways that schools were, were open and the choices that they made to sort of separate out, you know, how important is, how, how different is being in the room Zooming the teacher while you have the lunch from, like, not having the access to those options.
0: I like to come full circle back to the issue of, is it the lack of in-person learning that leads to lower rates, or is it the health impacts of COVID-19 driving student academics?
1: So I think in terms of, of the kind of health impacts, like the health impacts on kids, again, you know, the, the, in per, the places that had more in-person schooling also had more COVID. And so if you thought, you know, people having COVID is the cause of this, that confound goes the other way. There's plenty of other things and plenty of other confounds around lockdowns and other health impacts and so on that might be driving it. But I think the particular kind of like, is it just COVID, is, is not likely to line up with the, with the data.
0: Some of Canada's most powerful and influential public policy experts listen to this podcast. If there was one takeaway you wanted them to leave this episode with, what would it be?
1: School closures are extremely costly. And I think that's that's the kind of biggest takeaway from this, that school closures, having students learn remotely, is not as effective a method of learning and although this is outside this research I think we have other other you know pieces of, of data that suggest that it has other costs on kids um, not just about learning but about sort of social emotional costs and so I, I think that in some ways I'd state it like that that school closures are costly rather than schools should not be closed because although I think schools should not be closed I think the most important frame is to say if we are contemplating that choice we want to recognize it is very very costly for kids and so it's it's there may be a circumstance in which that is necessary, um, but it, it certainly we must recognize its cost is very, very large to students.
0: Emily, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Thank you so much. Emily Oster is a professor of economics at Brown University. She joined us from Rhode Island. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, January 18th, a webinar with Evan Sidal, the president and CEO of the Alberta Investment Management Corporation. On January 27th, we ask Pandonomics and the Canadian Economy, where do we go from here? With Vanguard Global's Chief Economist, Joseph Davis, Global Chief Economist at Manulife Investments Management, Francis Donald, and with a view from the West, Todd Hirsch, Vice President and Chief Economist at ATB Financial. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy.
1: Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.